Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's tribute to Robert Conquest, a senior research fellow and scholar curator at Hoover for 28 years who passed away in 2015. A recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, Robert Conquest was a renowned historian of Soviet politics and foreign policy. His landmark work, The Great Terror, Stalin's Purge of the 30s, remains one of the most influential studies of Soviet history more than 35 years after its publication, and has been translated into more than 20 languages. More than a celebrated historian, Conquest was also a talented man of letters, publishing eight volumes of poetry and serving as a literary editor of the London Spectator. In this panel, entitled Conquest as Literary Figure, we'll hear from Sam Gwynn, the poet-in-residence and a university professor at Lamar University. Gwynn is introduced by Elizabeth Conquest, Robert Conquest's widow. The panel was recorded on January 25th, 2016. You know, um, my husband was a writer and described himself as such on his passport. He wrote from an early age until the final week of his life. Um, as an undergraduate, he filled notebooks full of poems, and some of these first appeared in 20th Century Verse in 1938. Um, and he wrote poetry right through the war in this lovely battered book that saw a fair amount of action. Um, but it contains lines like, the bridge attributed to Belisarius is blown and we cross the stream on foot. Um, he wrote uh, every day of our married life, well, maybe not one or two, but most, uh, at home, on airplanes, on holidays, lying on a beach. And he wrote on the backs of menus, invitations, boarding passes, my daughter's wedding invitation, <laughs> magazine covers, letters from Philip Larkin with no piece of paper in our house was sacred. And <laughs> sometimes it's sort of weird. Um, I met Bob through one of my colleagues in the English department where I was teaching at the University of Texas at El Paso. Um, he'd come to give a poetry reading. Uh, I was in San Francisco and missed a, uh, we were delayed by fog, something I'm sure you're all familiar with. And I missed the reading, but I arrived at the party um, and wandered in saying, isn't there some visiting poet here named Converse? Um, and, uh, you know, so our paths crossed for a while. And uh, I knew Bob had written some books on Russia. And I'd seen in the card catalog, The Great Terror. But this is really not my area of expertise. And I suppose I must shamefully tell you that I sort of didn't register. Um, instead, I was teaching and writing about mid-20th century British poetry. And it's through that that I came to know Bob's work, uh, his poetry, novels, literary criticism. Um, and as Stephen said, eventually the hero won the girl. <laughs> uh, in his memoirs, the English novelist Anthony Powell describes becoming engaged to Lady Violet Pakenham after they had spent 
a mere three weeks together. Um, in, I mean, in, in, to get in each other's company. And he wrote, undoubtedly, it was a rash decision on both sides. On the, one, on the other hand, there was absolutely no knowing what being married to someone is going to be like, short of marriage to that person. And he goes on to say that whether people are close friends for years, cohabit for decades, or meet and marry on sight, all marriages are equally chancy once the knot is tied. Well, Tony and Violet tied a knot that lasted happily until his death 65 years later. Uh, Bob and Tony were close friends, and the last volume of his great work, The Dance to the Music of Time, is dedicated to Bob. And he proposed to me uh, at the end of a day spent at the Pole's house in Somerset. Um, over the course of 18 months, we had spent less than six weeks in each other's company. Another rash decision. Uh, my, but my, my education in political matters began in 1979, a few days after our wedding, when I found myself at the first private party given by Margaret Thatcher at 10 Downing Street. The invitation had come to Bob as a bachelor, and he rang up the secretary and asked if he could bring me. So as we entered the room and the butler announced, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Conquest, uh, this beautiful, small, blonde, elegantly dressed in black lace, threw up her hands and said, oh, Bob's got married. <laughs> uh, it was an interesting gathering. And toward the end of the evening as we were leaving, she walked us toward the stairs. And they were still talking about those rotters in Russia. and. Uh, she suddenly turned to me and said, you'll have trouble with him, my dear, <laughs> but that's your problem. <laughs> Too busy to run, running the country, I guess, to help. Um, so many of you here know him as a historian, but it was as a poet I knew him. And we have with us today someone who can speak with great authority on Bob's literary career. Another poet, scholar, editor, and critic, R.S. Gwynn, better known as Sam. And Bob was fortunate in his friends, uh, people who lived to extreme old age as he did, usually lose their friends over the years. But he had the capacity to make younger friends who, uh, people like Christopher Hitchens, Martin Amos, Ian McEwen, uh, I won't, the list is long, and Sam Gwynn. Uh, and they kept him engaged in what to Bob was a very important part of his life, the literary part of his life. His memoirs are entitled Two Muses, because he saw himself first as a poet and then as a historian. Um, so Sam um, is poet in residence and university professor at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. He's been on the faculty there since 1976. He has published five collections of poetry since winning awards for his first work during his undergraduate years at Davidson College. His poems are widely anthologized, most recently in Best American Poetry 2015. He is the editor of Poetry, a pocket anthology, New Expansive Poetry, Theory, Criticism, History, and two volumes of the Dictionary of Literary Biography. 
He has regularly written criticism in many journals, including the Suwannee Review and the Hudson Review. For 19 years, Sam's been a participant and faculty member at the uh, Westchester University Poetry Conference, and he was recently named its program director. As the co-founder of that conference, Dana Joya, former uh, chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, has noted, as a poet, not only is Sam ingeniously funny, he is an effortless master of verse forms. No American poet of his generation has written better sonnets, and very few can equal him in the ballad, couplet, rondo, and pantoum, not to mention the half dozen new forms he has invented. Both Sam and Bob were recipients of the Michael Brado Award in Light Verse from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, Bob in 1997 and Sam in 2004, and their friendship sprang from that connection. For a decade, they sent each other drafts of works in progress, and Sam was instrumental both in connecting Bob with Wayweiser Press, publisher of my husband's last two poetry collections, Penultimata and Bloke Lore and Bloke Songs, as well as editing the former. Not unnaturally, bloke, uh, Penultimata is dedicated to Sam. Both of those books are in the display cabinet. So it is a great pleasure to present this dear friend, Sam Gwynn, who will be talking about conquest as a literary figure. Thank you, thank you. I uh, am actually a little embarrassed, although certainly honored to be here at, at the Hoover. Uh, but apparently, uh, as I was telling Liddy, I misread the instructions for the conference and my part in it. Uh, I thought it said I was to talk about Bob's influence on literature. And either I misread it or somebody misplaced an apostrophe because uh, I came prepared to talk about all of the famous Bobs in literature. <laughs> so I wanted to start with Bob Herrick and Bob Burns, Bob Browning, Bob Bridges, our own Bob Frost, Bob Graves, Bob Elliott. You mean Tom? Elliot? Quite right. <laughs> now, certainly, Bob Conquest comes on the list, but unfortunately, I didn't prepare a full lecture on him, so I'll just have to tell you a bit about a few other Bobs uh, on, that I didn't mention, but again, you may be uh, able to recognize uh, at least three of these other Bobs. So the first one I want to talk about is a gentleman by the name of Bob Contact. Bob Contact was born in 1917 in Great Malvern, Worcestershire, to an American father and an English mother. Contact was educated at Worcester College, the University of Grenoble, and Magdalen College, Oxford. After service in World War II, he had a long career as a poet, man and letters, and historian. In 1981, he became a senior research here at the Hoover Institution and served here till his retirement and his death in 2015. Uh, who was Bob Contact? Well, someone mentioned, I think, uh, either earlier or perhaps I heard it myself, the phrase, the genius for friendship. 
and there are many personal friends of Bob here in the room. I won't ask you to stand, but I know just from talking to people that his net of friendship uh, was very wide and certainly very well chosen. Uh, particularly his literary friendships. Bob contact uh, somewhere in the early 1950s had read a poem he liked by a poet named Dennis Enright, D.J. Enright, and contact contacted Enright, and Enright contacted contact, and they became fast friends. It happened that Enright was just about the same, at the same time, publishing a book called Poets of the 1950s. The only problem was it was published in Japan, where it got very little notice from the English press. But Bob Contact, on the other hand, uh, had a contact contract with Macmillan Publishers. And thus, he was able to get in touch with a number of these other poets who Enright knew, and quickly they became friends of Bob as well. Uh, probably, at least early on, the most prominent of these was Kingsley Amos. Uh, most people know Amos certainly is a great comic novelist, but uh, he was a considerable poet as well. Uh, what shall I say about this, shall we say, fortuitous meeting of minds? They met at a cocktail party. Bob impressed Amos by reciting from memory the whole of a poem called The Ballad of Eskimo Nell. <laughs> I'll read you a few stanzas of The Ballad of Eskimo Nell to give you an idea. Well, maybe I'll just read one stanza. <laughs> so find me a seat and stand me a drink, and a tale to you I'll tell of dead-eyed Dick and Mexican Pete and the gentle Eskimo Nell. And that's the only clean stanza <laughs> in an eight-page poem that, incidentally, legend has it may have been written by Noel Coward, of all people. <laughs> so after the cocktail party, the cocktail party between the two continued on late in the evening, and, of course, they were friends for life. Uh, Amos, of course, then connected contact with Philip Larkin. Amos and Larkin had been at Oxford together, and again, uh, this contact quickly flourished. Liddy is presently, I think, looking through about 800 pages, I believe you said, of correspondence between the two that was given to the Bodleian. And, uh, of course, a lot of this has been published, but not all of it. And of course, uh, this was back in, I, I suppose, sort of the golden age of uh, letter writing. Bob loved to write letters, loved to receive them, as did his friends. A lost art, unfortunately. Next time we'll be getting the collected tweets of some famous <laughs> writer instead of the collected letters. The other poets that this led to, uh, Elizabeth Jennings, John Holloway, John Wayne, that's not the airport, but John Wayne, the poet and novelist. And interestingly enough, for 
people here are two poets, first Donald Davey and secondly Tom Gunn. Now Gunn came over in 1953 from England uh, after appearing in one of Bob's anthologies that I'll talk about in a minute, primarily to, stu to study with Ivor Winters, uh, I guess, you know, kind of the great standard upholder of Stanford, upholder of Stanford's, or am I getting that backwards? The Stanford upholder of Stanford, standards at the time. <laughs> I didn't even write that, I made it up. Uh, and of course, Davey ended up replacing Ivor Winters from 1960 and through you know, his long career as well. So obviously this place has a great connection uh, with the friends of Bob long before Bob himself came here. Uh, younger poets, well again, I don't know how many Bob knew, uh, but certainly he knew Wendy Cope, you know, possibly the best read, most often read English poet of the last 30 years or so. Uh, poet I hope becomes laureate one of these days. Uh, Wendy emailed me and said that I relished Bob's mischievous wit both in personal encounters and in his poems. I had great respect for affection and affection for Bob and tremendous admiration for his achievements. Uh, through me and Wendy both, Bob became acquainted with the English poet John Whitworth uh, who has published uh, a number of poems in the Quadrant. I don't see if John O'Sullivan is here, but John knows his work quite well. And John wrote a quite wonderful, uh, very short, uh, but uh, memorial tribute to Bob after he died that appeared in that Australian magazine. Uh, and of course, then we get into the long list of other literary figures uh, that I want you know, talk about as friends of contact, but certainly two of the most important are Martin Amos and the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, who counted themselves friends of Bob, and again, in Martin's case particularly, had known Bob all through his childhood. And somewhere down there at the end of the list comes me. I got to know Bob about 2005. Uh, as Lydia said, we kept up an interesting conversation for over a decade, mostly about poetry, very rarely about politics. And uh, I was privileged uh, when Bob sent me the manuscript of what became his next to last book, Penultimata, saying that he hoped to publish it electronically via something called lulu.com. <laughs> and I wasn't aware of lulu.com. I quickly looked it up and I said, Bob, I really think we can do a lot better than this. Uh, this is not what you want. And so I contacted my friend Phil Hoy of Waywiser Press in England. Phil has been uh, very good about publishing uh, both American poets under the Anthony Hecht Award and younger British poets. Uh, and he's also done, I wish that Bob had been able to do one, a series of book-length conversations with senior poets like Richard Wilbur and Anthony Hecht. Uh, this is a missed opportunity. But again, that proved to be a very fruitful collaboration between Phil and Bob because then Phil went on a couple of years later to bring out what turned out to be Bob's last book, Bloke Songs and Bloke Lore, 
So, you know, again, let's just say that, you know, the expression is, I think, uh, I was country when country wasn't cool. Uh, Bob Contact was network when network wasn't. I mean, quite literally, I think he established uh, an important group of poets. And again, you're still kind of, I'm still hearing, you know, from people who are sort of on the fringes one way or another, who have kind of worked their way back through Bob to me and to others as well. So that's Bob Contact. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about another Bob. This is called Bob Contrarian, sometimes known also by the pseudonym Bob Controversy. Uh, Bob Contrarian was born uh, in July 1917 in Great Malvern, Worcestershire to an American, well, you know all of this, of course. Uh, but let's say that Bob Contrarian was an editor and a critic and again took the contrary role, I think, very seriously. This was the major fruit of it. You can see the first edition in a very modest green cover out in the display case. This is a later reprint. This was New Lines, an anthology, modestly titled, published in 1956 by Macmillan. This has been called the most influential anthology of the second half of the 20th century. Well, I tend to agree, primarily because it introduced so many poets that I've named already in the contact list to the larger audiences that they deserved. Now, let's say that this is a book that is primarily a generational anthology. Bob was born in 17. Most of the poets in here were born within a five-year period of that one way or the other. But it attempted to find some kind of new middle ground in British verse simply by saying that there have been, as Bob would have said and did say, there have been two polarities in English poetry so far in the 20th century. Uh, and of course, we're talking about English poetry after the great modernist surges of the 1910s and 1920s. So first, there is one group, the poets of the 1930s. As Bob said, one gets the idea that on January the 1st, 1930, all of these poets simultaneously began to write poems. It includes W.H. Auden, Stephen Spender, a non-poet but fellow friend Christopher Isherwood, uh, C. Day Lewis, and Louis McNeese, all born around 1905, 1906, 1907. Uh, these were socially committed poets. <clears throat> Many of Auden's poems, such as his poem on Spain, or his famous poem uh, on the beginning of World War II in Europe, uh, again, are wide-ranging social commentaries. Uh, however, the next 10-year group goes pretty much in the opposite direction. This was what I would call a neo-romantic surge against the intellectualism, the political stance, and the topicality of the Auden generation. So born in 
1913 and 1914, we get two very influential poets, George Barker, not very much read today, but certainly Dylan Thomas still is, a kind of neo-romanticism, or as Bob said, not so much about Thomas, some of whose poems he admired, but about the influence of Thomas. The mistake that was made in the 40s was of giving the id, a sound player on the percussion side, under a strict conductor, conductor <coughs> too much of a say in the doings of the orchestra as a whole. Uh, poets were encouraged to produce diffuse and sentimental verbiage or hollow technical pirouettes. Praise even went to writers whose verse seemed to have been put together from the snippets in the towards more picturesque speech page of Reader's Digest. So again, it was an attempt by Bob and his fellow blokes, as he would say, to establish themselves as significant poets first of the 1950s, a poetry particularly of that time period. But as he says, more importantly, to again cultivate and produce and perhaps certainly make popular a type of verse that was grounded by rationality, common sense, structure, and again that avoided the excesses of political propagandizing on one hand and on the other the unfettered kind of use of language that we do associate with Dylan Thomas. Ten years later, after New Lines 1, he published New Lines 2 and again added several poets, uh, in a couple of cases it seems like somewhat begrudgingly to his original list, but again maintained uh, in his introduction that the poets here use the central historical principle of English poetry, neither howl nor cipher, but the language of men. I could go on with this. Bill, uh, Bob wrote uh, for Zach Leader a wonderful essay on the so-called movement. How many of you have ever heard of the movement? Okay, good. Forget it, it doesn't exist. Never existed. Bob said it never existed. It was kind of a journalistic figment that again, you know, critics like to have little labels that they can shunt everyone into the boxes. And of course, they all obviously, from the critical point of view, do exactly the same thing and are governed by some kind of single theory. Well, if you knew Bob, you know that if there's anything he hated, it was theory. I think uh, the previous lecturer told us about <laughs> what happens when theory dominates a whole society and uh, the results that that brings about. So, you know, in one of his last interviews, you find him again talking about the effects of modernism. This was with an interview with Bill Baer uh, in uh, roughly 2004 about modernism. He said, actually, I think the old problem where poets ignored the laity. This is a statement of Larkin's that he liked, the idea that poets had somehow 
given up on the general reader, that they were now writing poems for the experts, for the critics, for the academicians to read, uh, has given way to a situation now where poets bash the laity on the head. It's the old epitale bourgeois of the French symbolists. The public has been sort of buffaloed, and of course, as you know, we now have arts establishments which encourage ridiculous excesses. He mentioned, among other things, the huge proliferation of poets in the digital age. Uh, saying to me one time, which he also repeats to Bill, I just read in the paper the other day an article describing someone as one of the leading poets of the Bolinas Bay area. Of course, Bob had an abiding hatred of Kant and such ridiculous statements. He said, my God, how many could there be? <laughs> I stayed there once. There aren't any. And I saw, well, of course, I'll just conclude this section with, you know, what did Bob the contrarian, you know, find out about uh, the future or say about the future? Well, he said hope. There is some hope. He said, for one thing, one thing remains undiminished. I see that children still love and sing rhymed songs. So the essence of the thing always manages to survive even at the folk level. There's always hope. The last uh, of these Bobs is Bob Confirmed. And the best confirmation of any poet is to simply read a few of the poems. Could you pour me a little water? Yes, I will. Uh, one thing I will say is that Bob, some of you may know, is the great master of the limerick. Philip Larkin said, at five lines and under, he can match any poet in history. <laughs> a limerick, five lines long, is a very complicated little machine for poets. If you've ever seen the attempts to write one by people who think they know what a limerick is, you can get the idea very quickly. One syllable out of place, one rhyme that doesn't quite work, wrecks the whole thing. Well, to go back to Stephen's talk, let me say that a lot of this can be summed up in one limerick of Bob's, which I must say, in my opinion, and shared opinion, is perhaps the greatest limerick ever written. It's called Progress. There was a great Marxist named Lenin who did two or three million men in. That's a lot to have done in. But where he did one in, that grand Marxist Stalin did ten in. <laughs> one of the poems, uh, or serious poems, that Bob liked and talked about a lot is a poem called The Rugby Venus, which I'll read. <clears throat> Not a long poem. It is an ekphrastic poem, a poem about a painting, uh, which in this case is a very famous painting by Velázquez of the uh, uh, mid-17th century of a reclining nude. She is facing away from us, but looking at a mirror, this Venus that's being held up by her son Cupid, one of the oddities of it. And if you know Velázquez's paintings, you know that there are lots of mirrors that he uses, uh, particularly, is that the reflection in the frame can't possibly, because of the angles and the size, be the reflection of the woman herself. This, of course, was one of the few Spanish nudes from that period 
to survive simply because the Inquisition was not uh, particularly fond of thiefy pictures as we know them. Uh, but apparently Philip IV had this hanging in his uh, private apartments. The Rokeby Venus, known this because in Yorkshire, uh, there was a Rokeby house where the painting, which is now in the National Museum, hung for a long time. The Rokeby Venus. Life pours out images, the accidental at once detected when the purging mind detects their resonance as inessential. Yet these may leave some fruitful trace behind. Thus on this painted mirror is projected the shield that rendered safe the Gorgon's head, a travesty, yet even as reflected the young face seems to strike us, if not dead, at least into an instantaneous winter which life and reason can do nothing with, freezing the watcher and the painting into a single immobility of myth. But underneath the pigment's changeless weather, the artist only wanted to devise a posture that could show him altogether face, shoulders, waist, delectable smooth thighs. So with the faulty image as a start, we come at length to analyze and name the luminous darkness and the depths of art, the timelessness that holds us is the same as that of the transcendent sexual glance and art grows brilliant in the light it sheds direct or not on the inhabitants of our imagination and our beds. Uh, we'll save time for questions. So I'm going to skip through Penultimata, which has many delights. This is one that I helped edit and was very proud of, you know, putting that together with Bob's help and Liddy's. Uh, but I want to read from what is probably Bob's last poem, certainly his last most ambitious poem, which is a poem called Getting On. It's about being in one's 90s. Uh, it is five pages long, so I can't read of all, of the, all of that, but I will read the conclusion from it. And he has meditated wide and far in the poem about time, about history, about geology, about the stars, about distances, you know, certainly everything, I guess, that, you know, as he says, you know, inhabits the mind and eventually finds its way onto the page. For yes, these verses have ranged wide caves, word worlds, spectra, with the tried and truly personal defenses for which the mind attuned the senses. Subjective, yes, say some who'd seek to average out what's quite unique, whose winds and words can still outface negation with one warm embrace, while lifespan, whether of days or years, somehow up to a point coheres with open skies, hearts almost fit to represent the infinite, but no perspectives that suppose mind maelstroms calming to a close. Validities do not depend on how their bearers fade or end. With no conclusion on the way, one needs the briefest holiday. 
inputs accumulating still, find yet more questionnaires to fill, and all these rhythms to satisfy. One takes a breath and then a sigh. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.